Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to the War Room Podcast. I'm Genevieve Lester, the DeSario Chair of Strategic and Theater Intelligence at the U.S. Army War College. Thanks for joining us today. Today's podcast is part of a six-part series on intelligence. The series approaches the topic from a variety of angles through a series of interviews with some of the field's leading scholars and practitioners. For a broad overview of several of these themes, be sure to check out the introductory podcast in the series, which I recorded with Dr. Jacqueline Witt, the War Room Podcast Editor. In this, the third podcast of the series, Dr. Paul Piller, a retired career CIA officer and Georgetown University professor, and Ms. Dawn Hicks, a student here at the Army War College and senior intelligence analyst at Cybercom, discuss issues of strategic intelligence, senior level decision making, and policy. Let's turn to their conversation. Hi, I'm Dawn Hicks. I'm Paul Piller. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be with you. You suggest intelligence agencies have a negligible impact on big decisions, such as the decision to go to war, adding that decision makers rely mostly on preconceived notions of how the world works and past experiences to guide them. What do you think are the dangers of this? Well, first of all, Don, we should emphasize that that there is an awful lot of important intelligence support that goes on at other levels with lesser decisions. So I'm I'm really just talking here about the, the very big decisions, like going to war or reorienting grand strategy. And what the danger is, or what's lost, is the complications, the consequences, the second and third order things that may not occur, uh, but they may well occur and and, uh, not be something that the decision maker has thought about. What what a president or any other senior leader brings with him or her to office is inevitably a simplified view of how the world works. And sometimes uh, it takes uh, a bureaucracy that has studied other aspects of uh, U.S. interests and relations in the world to point out uh, things that may happen that simply didn't come to mind to the decision maker. Sometimes we've been fortunate in the way U.S. foreign policy has worked out. I mean, for example, uh, President Reagan, when he came into office, he had some very specific ways uh, that he uh, looked at the world and the way he thought it worked, specifically uh, with regard to relations to the Soviet Union, things turned out pretty well just going on Ronald Reagan's instincts. Uh, At a different time and place, they might not have turned out so well. Uh, There were other instances uh, where there were some glitches that came up because we didn't involve the bureaucracy. For example, uh, President Nixon's opening to China in the early 1970s, which was a very closely held operation. And I think that was a very positive and historic uh, departure. But because uh, the State Department in this case was essentially shut out uh, of the operation, there were some uh, blips in the process right at the very end of Mr. Uh, Nixon's visit when finally the Secretary of State and Assistant Secretary got involved. So that's, that's the sort of thing that uh, a bureaucracy exists for, and when you don't involve them, you have to wind up uh, with some problems. So dare I say that sometimes a bureaucracy is actually useful. It, 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 it is there for a purpose. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, prior to the decisions to escalate the war in Vietnam and the 2003 invasion of Iraq, uh, both of which were decisions that were made in very small, closed circles, the U.S. intelligence community warned of the dangers and the lack of evidence. What are some of the ways the IC can be more effective in ensuring counterarguments do not fall on deaf ears? 
Well, I would draw a distinction between those two particular instances because they were actually different in an important respect. In the case of the Vietnam War, there actually were a lot of requests that the Johnson administration made to the intelligence community for assessments that were relevant to their decision. Now, you can look at some of the decisions that were made and say, well, they didn't exactly follow from what was implied by the intelligence, but that wasn't because they weren't listening. It was more because there were other considerations that the policymakers thought were important. Uh, some of the members of the Johnson administration actually had a very pessimistic view of how the Vietnam War might turn out, which was consistent with some of those intelligence judgments, but they thought the effort had to be made to, to try to protect U.S. credibility and to show that the U.S. would be willing to draw a line in the sand in this Cold War. The decision to invade Iraq in 2003 was much different in that there was no policy process at all. It, it was not only a closely held decision, but one that excluded input from any of the bureaucracy, whether it was the military, the foreign uh, service, or the intelligence community, when it came to the basic decision as to whether to invade Iraq. Now, in terms of what the intelligence community can do about these things, uh, it's a matter of intelligence tradecraft uh, to try to find ways not just to make the right judgments, to, but to make an impact and try to get the intention of the decision maker. There's no uh, cookbook way to, uh, to solve this problem. Uh, one thing I would say, though, uh, that is that the intelligence community really ought to look uh, to the other policy-making branch, namely the legislature, the Congress, uh, as just as uh, important a consumer as the executive branch, even though, of course, the agencies are themselves part of the executive branch. My experience has been Congress has not always been willing to pick up that ball. Uh, they see themselves only as an overseer and not a consumer. But to the extent that they can be brought into the policy process, then that's another way for other perspectives to come into play, uh, even if the decision makers of the moment in the executive branch uh, are choosing to ignore them. And that's a really good point because the, the executive branch will have a harder time, um, you know, uh, ignoring the legislative branch if they are armed with the information that may sometimes, um, that, that's being neglected. Make, making it part of a larger policy process uh, and part of a larger political process often is the only way in which uh, some points are going to get attention. Absolutely. So you, you state factual beliefs follow emotional sentiments and perceptions follow preferences. How does this statement apply to the American understanding of global conflict? Well, this is really a, a human race-wide thing. It's not specifically American, but we Americans do have our preferences. Uh, and uh, it's human nature uh, for us to believe more things that come from sources we like uh, or that we have positive feelings about. I mean, I, I can think of a couple of examples. One that immediately comes to mind is the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, for various reasons, um, the American population tends to be more supportive of and more sympathetic with the Israeli side of that conflict. And that tends to get translated into beliefs that are often misbeliefs about particular details as to, you know, who did what in what year and who offered what and with regard to uh, trying to get to a two-state solution, that sort of thing. Um, there, there's, there's no real way around this. Um, uh, there, there are other examples that, that, that come to mind as well, particularly when we have uh, a, an adversary 
that has been, been an adversary for so long and is seen so negatively that it's just hard for us Americans to believe anything that could be described as reasonable or positive. I think we've gotten to this state, for example, with, with Iran, uh, how it's, it's been seen as an adversary ever since the Iranian Revolution in 1979. Uh, and so when we discuss issues about, say, what the Iranians are doing in Syria or other Middle Eastern matters, it is very difficult to get across anything that is a, an explanation of legitimate fears, concerns, or if not legitimate, at least understandable fears, concerns, threat perceptions on the Iranian side. This is, gets into what political scientists call a security dilemma, that uh, when one side does something for what it regards as defensive reasons, its adversary tends to see it as offensive and a threat. And, and then it gets seen in the other direction the same way. And so you, you have an adversarial relationship that just gets worse and worse and it's basically based on misperception. Absolutely. And I think the, um, you had mentioned too, the, the lack of empathy and understanding of the motivations that drive countries to take seemingly offensive action leads to this this uh, constant misperceptions and potential for conflict escalation on our part. So what are some of the ways the IC can increase um, empathy and understanding and, and deliver that as part of our assessments to decision makers? Well, this really gets to the a core part of the mission of the intelligence community, which is to explain not only the capabilities in terms of military capabilities and so on, although that's obviously important, but also the, uh, the perceptions, the fears, uh, uh, the threats as the other side sees them, the objectives, the motivations on the part of other countries and major groups like terrorist groups. These are things that we don't necessarily uh, naturally see ourselves, but it's, we rely on an intelligence community to try to educate ourselves on these things. Uh, I would consider that part of the intelligence community mission, talking about intentions, perceptions, and so on, as at least as important as the part that we all know about, looking at capabilities. Because if we misperceive what the other side's intentions and fears are, then that's a prescription for getting into one of these escalatory spirals in which at worst we might be in an armed conflict with uh, an adversary and neither side intended it. So it, it's, it's not just a matter of what the intelligence community can do better. It's really a core mission of the community, uh, along with everything they have to say about capabilities. Excellent. So given the role of the IC um, is to identify and characterize threats, there's very little analysis being done on areas of cooperation, instances of compliance, and things that are just generally going right. So as a result, the IC really focuses on only half of the bigger picture. What are some of the ways do you think we can correct this? Well, in a sense, it, it's normal and appropriate for the intelligence agencies to focus on the bad stuff, the threats. Uh, that, of course, is what we think about most often if we think they've failed us. And uh, you're not going to hear much about intelligence failures because the intelligence community did not say enough good things about something that was going well. We hear about failures or what are described as failures uh, when something does not go well. And I, I think it's understandable and appropriate that the intelligence community is always going to give uh, first preference or first priority to that. Uh, so I don't really see that as, as anything wrong. That said, 
it is appropriate, and certainly the intelligence community can increase the decision advantage it gives to our policymakers uh, by doing what we sometimes call opportunity analysis, uh, pointing out where the United States does have opportunities to advance its interests and, uh, and where, where things are going well. And in fact, if, if you think about kind of the psychology of our policymaker consumers, this, this fits into part of it. Because one of the frustrations that some consumers, even at the presidential level, have expressed is, all right, intelligence guys, you tell me this is a problem. What am I supposed to do about it? <clears throat> you, you just give me bad news all the time. And so one of the ways to try to get through uh, to a policymaker to get his or her attention is to relate to that decision maker's objectives and the positive things that he or she wishes to do on behalf of the United States and to point out opportunities, that's opportunity analysis, uh, where, where uh, uh, points could be scored and the United States could advance its interest. Excellent. Thank you. You had mentioned um, that the, um, that the U.S. has a national need for boogeymen, evildoers, and demons in the U.S., and how that often leads to an inflated threat perception of our adversaries, just always you know, looking for the, the adversary um, who's next. Um, what are the implications of this in the IC? Well, the implications for the intelligence community are it's that much harder to get across a more nuanced and more detailed picture of what such an adversary is really doing and thinking. Um, again, there's this tendency to think of players outside our borders as being all good or all bad. Uh, there's a flip side of this, by the way, that even those we consider friends and allies may be doing things contrary to our interests sometimes. Uh, the fact is that uh, despite our effort and uh, inclination to divide the world into friends and allies or good guys and bad guys, there isn't anyone out there, any country, that doesn't have at least some shared interest with us and some interests that conflict with us. So I think you take uh, a country like Iran that is seen uh, universally in the United States as an adversary, and the challenge to the intelligence community is to maintain its credibility while still pointing out ways in which, for example, Iranian behavior may actually be parallel to U.S. interest, as, as it is in many ways with regard to uh, combating uh, radical Islamist terrorism, for example. They, they cooperated with us in the past in Afghanistan. Well, that's not a welcome message uh, to much of the political community, which naturally tends to simplify things between good guys and bad guys, and, and a, a country like Iran is placed on the bad side. Well, thank you so much for your insight, Paul, and, and for coming here today to share to share your perspective, you know, over such a long and distinguished career. Um, you know, the IC, there's a lot of smart people, but, you know, the fact that you're here to take the time to share everything that you've learned with us is, is certainly a, a real treat, and we appreciate you coming up and for your time. Thank you, Don. It's, it's been a pleasure and a privilege to be here at the War College. All right. Thank you very much. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.